There are breakthroughs in science that make it easier for those who can't become parents to do so. But it's also raising complex questions for women in India who become surrogates for families in America or Europe. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today I'm joined by Dr. Daisy Diamampo to discuss her research and book about transnational surrogacy. The Fordham University assistant professor is author of Transnational Reproduction, Race, Kinship, and Commercial Surrogacy in India. Good morning, Daisy. Good morning, Robin. So can we start by uh, you defining what is transnational reproduction? Of course. Uh, transnational reproduction um, is a term that I used to describe uh, the global surrogacy industry or transnational surrogacy, uh, what other people have referred to as cross-border reproductive travel, um, which is, in other words, the travel of intended parents from countries to um, other across national borders in order to access assisted reproductive technology procedures such as IVF, egg donation, and surrogacy. I, uh, IVF, could define what that in is? In vitro fertilization. Okay, now what do some of these procedures look like? Well, in vitro fertilization, for instance, is um, the fertilization of the egg and sperm in a Petri dish. Um, egg donation, um, as well as sperm donation, are um, forms of third-party gamete donation, where if you had, if you required uh, the assistance of an egg donor or a sperm donor in order to conceive a child, uh, you would search for a man or a woman who would be willing to donate their, their egg or sperm. So be the American parents would then take their egg and sperm to India mm -hmm. and then have someone carry their child for them. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And then another way is for um, a man to go to India uh, and use a woman in India's eggs with his sperm yes. to have a child that he, he then would bring home. Yes. Okay. Yes. In cases um, of infertility in which, for example, a woman's eggs aren't viable due to age um, or other medical reasons, they would seek an, uh, a third-party gamete donor. And so in those cases, they may also go to India and not only arrange with a woman uh, to carry the child, but they'd arrange with an, another Indian woman, for example, to donate their eggs. Um, and in those cases, couples may also seek eggs from other women from other countries, or they may uh, ask a friend or a relative. Um, there are various options that people pursue in that case. Daisy, why is India a big draw for these parents who are looking for surrogate mothers? Uh, well, at the time that I conducted my research, um, the bulk of which which, uh, which I did in 2010, India was a draw for various reasons. Uh, two of the most widely cited reasons were cost. Uh, it was so this, cheaper? It, absolutely. Um, particularly for uh, people who are coming from the United States, for example, where surrogacy arrangements could cost upwards of eighty to a hundred or one hundred fifty thousand dollars. By comparison, a surrogacy package in India could cost um, at that time between twenty five, thirty five, or forty thousand dollars. At the time, the the legal situation in India was made it also a, a sort of desirable destination for surrogacy. What do you mean legal? Um, the laws re restricting and regulating surrogacy surrogacy and assisted reproductive technologies vary widely around the world. Indeed, within the United States, they're not federally regulated. So states across the country here have different approaches to regulating or prohibiting commercial surrogacy. So some states are considered very friendly uh, states where one could practice, could do gestational surrogacy, for example, and not worry about a lot of legal hassles, while others explicitly prohibit and criminalize uh, paid surrogacy. India 
had no, no such laws on the books at two, in 2010, in the 2000s indeed. And uh, for that reason, people also found uh, India a, a desirable destination, in part because there was less of a concern that an Indian woman would turn around and decide that she changed her mind and, and, and attempt to lay claim on the baby that she gave birth to. Can I ask, how dangerous is the procedure for a surrogate? Um, assisted reproductive technologies, um, including IVF and egg donation and gestational surrogacy, do carry a wide range of medical and health risks, um, which many have argued are vastly underestimated um, in various contexts. And so for Indian women in particular, um, you have a range of sort of class and educational barriers. Um, and in my research, I found that many women often didn't receive, they didn't receive all of the information that was required for them to make an informed decision about whether or not it was in their interest to go forward with surrogacy um, and aware of all of the risks that it entailed. So IVF carries a wide range of risks. Um, there are higher rates of multiple pregnancies uh, with IVF, which means that a woman who becomes pregnant through IVF is going to be more likely to carry twins or higher order pregnancies. And so that in itself carries a, a more sort of intensive, carries additional risks for the woman to, who's carrying the pregnancy. Um, so there are additional medical interventions, and then there are also high rates of C-sections. So Dr. Daisy, what does this look like? So um, how is the process done? Generally, what happens is an infertile couple would travel, would sort of do their research, right, and find if they were living in a place where uh, surrogacy was cost prohibitive or surrogacy was uh, legally prohibited, they may consider seeking traveling abroad, right? And so if they decided to travel to India, they would make contact with a clinic, and that clinic would then invite them to come over. Um, often what would happen, I think the most, one of the more frequent scenarios that I observed was that a, a couple might travel to India from the United States, for example, and do the IVF procedure in India if they wanted to transfer fresh embryos. And the woman who was using, who was uh, sort of using her own eggs in the IVF procedure, her cycle had to be timed with a woman who was expecting to, who was going to have the resulting embryo transferred into her uterus. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, a real complex chain of events that needs to take place. Um, at the same time, it's important to emphasize that the rates of IVF, the rates of success with IVF are are not high. There's a 30% chance of a, a pregnancy. And so there's a lot of uh, sort of issues re with regard to timing and travel um, and the medical and uh, medic and the medical interventions that must take place to prepare women in order to um, to do IVF and surrogacy. And then how are the surrogate mothers recruited? They're recruited for through various ways. The most common way is for a woman who'd previously done surrogacy um, to become an agent or recruiter herself. Uh, and so she may go through the process and then as a result want to maintain relationships with the doctor. And she then turns to her family, her community, her neighbors and so on and says, you look like you really you look like you need help. Who doesn't need help amongst us in our community? We're all struggling, um, which was often the case. This was the narrative that they, they described. To they me were when in they a financial struggle. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, this is an opportunity. This is one way that you can help 
take care of that. Um, and they would describe surrogacy um, to their sister or their cousin or their neighbor, whoever it was that they were talking to. Um, and often these descriptions of how one could get pregnant and then get paid for it were met with, with disbelief. Um, they didn't understand the medical technologies. They didn't, they weren't, this was often sort of the first time they were hearing about this form of having a baby, this way of having a baby through this technology. Um, many of the women had previously undergone tubal ligation, right? So they were What's sterilized. It was. It's a form of sterilization where you tie up your fallopian tube so that you can't get pregnant. So it was. It's also the most common form of sterilization, or the most common form of contraception, I should say, in India. So many women, in my study, after they'd had their one or two babies, underwent tubal ligation to because they were done having children. children. Exactly. So now to be surrogates, they have to go and have that undone. No, IVF bypasses that process. Okay. IVF is 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 one way to sort of bypass this form of infertility, this kind of infertility in a sense. Uh, so women who had previously been sterilized to prevent the reproduction of their own families, to prevent, to inhibit their own fertility, are now learning that through IVF, which is essentially a process where you take medications that allow the woman's body to produce more eggs than it normally would in a single cycle, and then through a surgical procedure, they can remove anywhere between, you know, a handful and, and upwards of 20 some eggs or more, they remove those eggs through a surgical procedure uh, that then allows them to do the uh, fertilization through IVF um, and then transfer the resulting embryos back into the woman. So a woman who'd undergone tubal ligation previously can still become pregnant through IVF. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Fordham University Assistant Professor of Anthropology, Dr. Daisy Diamapo about her new book, Transnational Reproduction, Race, Kinship, and Commercial Surrogacy in India. Now, to back up a little, you were talking about the recruiter. So a woman who has gone through being a surrogate um, can become a recruiter. Is there any training involved? Is there, you know, is this, how do you know that the recruiter you're with is reputable and knowledgeable if you're a, you know, uh, American or European going to get a surrogate person in, in India or for the person who wants to be a surrogate, making sure that they have all the information they need. So from the uh, woman's perspective, right, the women that are considering, potentially considering becoming surrogates, uh, for them, the, sur the recruiter's experience is what counts. The recruiter can simply say to them, look, I've done it before. This is what happened. You go to the doctor, they explain to you the process, um, you get pregnant, and you, um, through the course of your pregnancy, you have so many doctor's visits, and so on and so on, right? Um, they explain to them, probably they will end up having a C-section, because that's what most surrogates, that's how most surrogates end up delivering their babies. And for the woman, this is, the recruiter is often someone that they know, through Word of mouth, many other people may have told them about this person and said she is a good agent, which is the terminology that they use. She will take care of you. She will look after you. She'll make sure you're doing what you have to do, um, ultimately, so that you can get paid. And this is the person who that woman is often going to have the most contact with throughout the course of her pregnancy. She'll see the doctor and, and other medical professionals for her prenatal care. But it's often the recruiter who gives her or the agent who gives her um, 
the most sort of one-to-one contact in terms of reassurance and information about their pregnancy. Uh, now, the question remains, if the recruiter is the person who's giving them the most information, including regarding uh, the sort of the medical and health implications of what's going on, does that count as informed consent? Uh, because they're not receiving that information directly from the doctor necessarily. Um, and the other point that I wanted to make is that the from the perspective of the parents, they're not engaging directly, they're not communicating directly with uh, the agents or recruiters who speak with the women in their communities. So there's a, a sort of very complex um, uh, sort of pyramid of um, a, a labor pyramid that takes place, right? So there are many, one person many. talking to one yes. person talking to one person. And exactly. Are there challenges with, with language barriers? Is that why there's not a lot of interaction between parents and the surrogate? Absolutely. Absolutely. So parents will often either contract directly with an agency or a clinic in India, or there are there were several um, third party brokers um, that served as conduits between the parents and the medical clinics in India. So that was an additional sort of layer. So you might have a person who says, I can help connect you with this doctor who's very reputable um, and and experienced in India. Um, And then that doctor will connect with an agent who is responsible for going to the community and finding surrogate women. And then that agent connects with uh, women in the community, right? Dr. Daisy, it sounds like a big game of telephone almost. And we know when you're doing that communication can break down mm-hmm. information can be misconstrued or um so uh, describe to me some of the challenges that these surrogate mothers uh, what's the experience like uh well i think you you know when you mentioned the breakdown of communication and all of the potential ways in which in which bar- these barriers can be met, it's that's I think one of the aspects that really characterizes exper- uh, surrogate mothers' experiences as being isolating in a sense and and not transparent. So from the surrogate mother's perspective, she'll undergo all of the medical testing um, and the prenatal care um, with her clinic. Um, sometimes she will move to a new home or a hostel that doctors will organize uh, so that it will be closer to the clinic or hospital where they eventually give birth. Um, but sometimes they'll also remain in their communities, in their homes for the duration of their pregnancy. Um, some doctors did have a practice or an informal policy in place where they encouraged communication between the surrogate mothers and the intended parents. But in my study, I found that most doctors, in fact, discouraged communication. Why? Uh, for various reasons. There was there were often rumors that circulated um, that there were expectations that if a surrogate were to... Um, communicate with the intended parents over the course of the of the of the pregnancy they may be more likely then to make additional requests but that some people framed as as a form of blackmail right so they didn't want to place any intended parents in any uncomfortable positions like that and by the same token people said well we don't want a situation where intended parents are offering their surrogates many parents wanted to offer many intended parents wanted to offer their surrogates gifts, uh, small gifts throughout the course of their pregnancy and so on. And some doctors found that this actually created uh, some tension and competition amongst surrogates who were, uh, oh. you know, uh, in contact with other people throughout their pregnancy. So it means one, you know, if I have a, a parent and I'm getting all these gifts yeah. and then someone else might be in my uh, hostel or the dorm with me or and mm-hmm. they're not getting all the gifts I'm getting, it would create animosity yeah. between the two. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... 
from the doctor's perspective, who were the ones who were organizing and facilitating, right? They were the ones who were making decisions about whether or not um, parents and surrogates could communicate or have any contact or meet. Um, from their perspective, it often just seemed easier to avoid all of these potential complications and say, wait until your surrogate gives birth and then you can meet and then you can give her all of the gifts and do whatever you want to show your gratitude, which is what often what the parents really wanted to do because they did, they were, you know, very, very grateful. Uh, but from the surrogate's perspective, they often didn't know who the parents were, who the clients were. They referred to them as clients. They didn't know necessarily who they were, where they were from. Maybe they might know a name, uh, which might give them some indication as to where they were from. They wouldn't often meet. It was rare in my study that I, I found a surrogate who'd met their uh, their clients. And if they did, it was often very brief. Um, and then when they did meet, it would often be after they'd already given birth to the baby, when the woman is recovering from childbirth. Um, this sort of deeply impacted their own sort of emotional um, experience of surrogacy. They in a good way or bad way? In a, in, in a bad way. Some surrogates, in a sense, adopted the, the clinical and medical narrative that there's no reason that surrogates should meet with parents because their job through this entire process is simply to to care for and uh, to sort of gestate and deliver a healthy baby. Mm -hmm. And some woman I spoke with said, I have no reason to speak with the parents. Um, so there was a sense of detachment, like was, this is your child, I'm just nurturing it for now, then I'm going to pass that absolutely. Pass it on to I you. I said, what will I do? One woman said, what will I do with it, this additional information about the couple? That doesn't affect what I have to do. There were absolutely other women, though, who said, it is our right to be able to meet face-to-face. -face. We should meet face-to-face -face because we're contracting in this um in this transaction, in this business, and you should, we should be able to meet and negotiate as well. So it was not only a form for them, it was, it was not only a matter of respect, where you must meet face-to-face -face with somebody who is doing something so important, but it was also a matter of, of negotiation, mm -hmm. right? Because many women felt that they weren't getting paid what they should have been getting paid, um, and they would have taken advantage of the opportunity to meet face-to-face -face, um, and negotiate directly, which is often what we expect to do in business transactions. Now, out of the amount of money that um, was charged for the procedure, I would think, again, with this, tra this train of doctors and agents and, you know, clinics and, and et cetera, um, how much of the money ends up getting to the surrogate? Uh, I would think not much, and that would probably be a, a problem for the surrogate who's really going through the danger. Exactly. So the woman who's bearing the brunt of the medical and health risks that are involved um, in the entire process um, is is ultimately, as you as you said, receiving the least. Right. So, for example, if a surrogacy package would cost between twenty five and forty thousand um, dollars, you've got the costs that go to the clinic, to the doctors. You've got your own travel costs. You have legal costs, um, and a whole host of other fees. That that are involved that go to the brokers and so on and so forth. Uh, the surrogate mother at the end of the day, in my study, most of the women that I interviewed were being paid between $4,000 and $6,000 uh, for a surrogacy. Um, and that amount varied depending on whether or not they gave birth via C-section because many doctors offered additional payment on top um, if they were undergoing cesarean section. Um, some doctors paid more too if they were carrying twins instead of singletons. But even for Four to six thousand dollars in India is not that much money. Am I correct in saying that? Or it's is a it? sizable sum of money. Uh, for many of the women m in my study, it was um, an important. It was a. It was a significant sum of money um, that 
that meant a lot to them, particularly because they were, if they were coming to surrogacy, it was often because they were in deep financial distress. Either their husbands lost their jobs or their husbands maybe had become injured and they couldn't work anymore. Um, or maybe they just needed more money to achieve what they wanted to achieve for their families, buy a home or send their kids to school. So so with the, the, the money, the thousands of dollars, what would that be the equivalent of maybe here in the state so we can understand it would be the equivalent of, okay, I can and I can buy completely buy a house or I might be able to get a car or I might how, how so, would you know right so this is where some of those uh, those myths or misconceptions come from so the, the the most common narrative that I heard while I was in India was that this sum of money is ultimately going to uh, fundamentally change this woman's life. She's going to buy a house. She's going to save money for her children, send them to school. And without question, this is the narrative that many of the intended parents um, heard and accepted and repeated. Because the parents are thinking, I'm doing a good thing Absolutely. by, you know, uh, getting my surrogate mother in this country that now I can financially help them and they mm -hmm. can bring me a kid. It's a win-win situation. Exactly. And some parents even used it as a justification for going to India, even when they had the money to do surrogacy in the United States. They, they saw themselves as, um, as spending this money that would create more and a deeper impact on women's lives. Um, the other side of that, though, is that the reality from uh, from my own research, I saw that the money offered some reprieve from the immediate financial um, the stress that they might, the financial constraints that, that they were experiencing, but it didn't offer that deep and lasting impact that many people believed it would. So I spoke with one woman, for example, who had made around four or five thousand dollars following her pregnancy in Mumbai where I did my research housing is scarce and very expensive so where this woman had received this sum of money it still was not enough and she turned around and had to pick up some of her she had to and ultimately ended up having to sell some of her family jewelry to mm. cover the remaining costs of the down payment for a home um, and I heard many other stories where women had expected that they would, this would sort of result in this life change, this life changing experience. But in the end, it sort of helped them out in the short term and they found themselves trying to be surrogates a second time. Did you, in your research or in your book, find any surrogates that became attached to their child or to the child they were carrying? Um, and struggled with giving it away? I think this is an interesting question. Some women definitely spoke of a sense of of loss, um, and they spoke of a sense of, I don't want to say it's exactly a sense of attachment, um, but there was a connection where uh, at the time of birth, they wanted to be able to see the child, uh, hold the child, um, maybe say hello, maybe say good goodbye. People did speak about this this desire to at least want to see what this child is, and so because they spent nine months nurturing, uh, nurturing the child, uh, surrogate mothers 
told me that it was the practice that they weren't even allowed to see or hold the child following the birth. And so that was, uh, for some women, a very traumatic experience. Um, because they would just take the child as soon as it was born and yeah. give them to the, the parent? Yes. And many women said it, was, it had nothing to do with them being so attached that they wanted to keep the child, right? But there is a relationship that was formed for them. Um, and they would need closure, I would yes. think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, by the same token, however, there were also other women who said, this is not my child. I don't have any attachment. Um, and I spoke with one woman, you know, a year or two later um, after they had done their surrogacy. And they said, you know, I, I don't really think I sometimes I think about this child, but I don't think of it as my own. Um, I don't think that it's my child right. or a relative of mine. Um, and, and so in that sense, it, it contradicts a lot of the literature um, that's been published about this sort of natural mother-child bond. You argue that there needs to be an understanding of race and power when it comes to these relationships between surrogates and parents. So explain what you mean by that. The process of transnational surrogacy um, takes place when it takes place across national class um, racial, ethnic, and religious lines, all of these different boundaries that exist between the people who are commissioning surrogacy and the people who are providing um, the services, right? There are a whole host of intersecting inequalities that are at the root of this relationship because you're talking about people from very different class backgrounds, nationality backgrounds, and so on and so forth. Um, and so that is really important to keep at the forefront of this uh, to understand that even when we speak about surrogacy as being a win-win situation, for example, or speak about the ways in which this money will fundamentally change this woman's life, um, offer her a, uh, a sort of rescue from her current situation. They don't change the underlying structural inequalities that fostered the global surrogacy industry in the first place. So, Dr. Daisy, ultimately, what did your research find? And I guess we could say, what was the conclusion in the book? I guess I want I, I would start by saying one of the the key questions that I was motivated by was this uh, was the question of how transnational surrogacy affects the relationships amongst all of these different people who are involved in the making of a baby, um, particularly when they take place across national class, racial, ethnic, religious lines, and so on and so forth, right? So in the context of all of these uh, differences um, and the inequalities that exist, how do people now understand the surrogate mother or the role of the egg donor or the, and, and so on and so forth? Um, I found that my inquiries into how people understand family and kinship intersected with particular ideas around race and difference. And so in the book, I talk about all of the various ways in which uh, even without explicitly talking about race, um, their narratives and the stories they told constructed the different players through a racial lens that ultimately served to um, position the surrogate mothers, for example, as a fundamentally different or essentially other uh, or a a population group, right, that is different from themselves, um, that as a result sort of naturalizes the inequalities that we used to describe, why they're in the position that they're in, why they make good surrogate mothers, and so on and so forth, right? And so the book sort of outlines the range of discursive tools, the range of narratives and stories that we tell that serve to um, racialize women, 
right, that serve to other them and place them so that we can see them as really different from ourselves, uh, and which ultimately serve to naturalize and maintain um, hierarchies and inequalities. So someone picking up your book would get an understanding of this. And but it's not just it's not only for scholars to understand this, right? Who else should pick up your book? Well, I think anyone who's interested in issues related to um, globalization and global health and uh, reproduction and science and technology um, can understand the roles of uh, of race and inequality and, and can can use this this study as a as a lens through which to understand the role that race and power play. Um, and one of my arguments is that it's it's. It's important to be attuned to and identify the instances in which this happens, uh, in which we use race as a lens to nat uh, uh, the, the process of racial formation as a way to sort of naturalize the inequalities that exist so that we can then unpack them and say, well, this is actually an instance of constructing a group uh, in a sort of monolithic way that covers up the the diversities of their experiences um, and their backgrounds and their personal histories and so on and so forth. Um, this is, to me, particularly important, for example, in you know the current political context in the United States. We speak about many different groups in this country in, in ways in which that describe them as a, a sort of monolithic group that stereotype them in particular ways. Um, that's a, a very uh, a sort of complex process. The The book offers, I'm, I'm a cultural and medical anthropologist, and so my research methods are rooted in the ethnographic method. So I conducted in-depth interviews and participant observation. And so one contribution that the book makes is um, it shines a light into the actual sort of narratives and everyday experiences of the people that are involved. So when developing policy and thinking about how to regulate surrogacy and assisted reproductive technologies and so on and so forth, um, my hope is that we actually can come to take into account what the women themselves, for example, might wish to see in a policy. Uh, are their voices taken into account when we talk about uh, whether or not we should prohibit or legalize commercial surrogacy? How should we regulate these practices? Uh, and to date, they're, they're often the bodies that are most uh, impacted by the technologies, but their voices are the least heard in the debates. And so I hope that the book also uh, makes a, a, a contribution on that level. Dr. Daisy, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Daisy Diamapo. Her new book, Transnational Reproduction, Race, Kinship, and Commercial Surrogacy in India, is out now by New York University Press. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kyle McKee. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.